Okay. Well, here it comes. Can you feel it? We're closing in on the exciting finale of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. We're starting the last chapter of the book this morning, um, and next week we'll finish with the cliffhanging conclusion of this book. That might be a slight exaggeration, but we are finishing up the book of of Philippians this week and next. Uh, And once again, I think uh, if you've been reading ahead, following along, uh, it's just amazing to find that there's so much stuff that was applicable and so on point then remains so applicable and on point now. It is amazing. Uh, So before we get started, let's, uh, let's start with prayer. Oh God, Father of history, this day let it be known that you are God of the present tense. Lord, you are with us from the beginning to the end, uh, and every step we take, Lord, you are here, you are present. Um, And that is so comforting when it seems like our world is so out of control. Um, But we are here this morning because we recognize that there is a sovereign God uh, who is in control of all things. So, Lord, we can come before you, we can, we can worship you, knowing that you have all of this in the palm of your hand. Even though we don't understand so much of what's going on, Lord, you have a plan, and it is being executed perfectly. Um, but we pray this morning, Lord, for, for so many things, for the, uh, the situation going on in Afghanistan. What a, what a heartbreaking week that has been. We, we mourn, we weep alongside with the families of those who have been killed. Lord, we pray for safety for those who are still trying to get out. We pray for wisdom for those who are trying to make decisions, for wisdom that that seems to be beyond them. Um, Lord, we ask for wisdom. And there are so many challenges that we face here at home. Um, Hurricanes approaching Louisiana and Mississippi and and increase in COVID cases. And Lord, there are just so many things that we don't understand, but we know that you are in control. And it feels, uh, at least to me, never truer to think that we are strangers in a strange land Lord, we are so grateful for that this is not our final home. And we know that we have a purpose for being here, that we are uh, not just here to survive, um, but we are here to glorify our Creator. We are here to share the good news, to bring the light of the gospel to other people. And Lord, I pray that you uh, embolden us, that you quicken us, that you uh, encourage us and equip us to be ambassadors of your gospel, to be sharers of the light and the darkness around us. We thank you for your love for us, for the word that you've given to us, for how much it means to us, for how applicable it is to our lives today. May we hear what you have for us in today's text. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week or listened online or streamed or whatever the other options are, intuited maybe, I don't know. Um, But if if you were here, you know that that Al somehow co-opted the first verse of chapter 4 into his text at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 is mine. <laughs> he thought perhaps I wouldn't notice that he had poached one of my verses. But it turns out that the first verse of chapter 4 is one of those pesky therefore verses. Um, so it kind of made sense for Al to go into 4.1 and, and land on that therefore as a wrap-up or a conclusion to all the stuff that, that came before that. But interestingly, I think as we'll see today, that chapter 4, verse 1 also serves as kind of a transition verse to what's going to come next. 
which is why some commentators, I think Al mentioned, some commentators insist that uh, this chapter 4, what we know as chapter 4, verse 1, really ought to be included in chapter 3, while the others say, oh, no, 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 it makes so much more sense to be part of chapter 4. Our position is, all right. It's kind of a both-and situation. It could really work equally well in 3 or 4. So if you'll remember from last week, the end of chapter 3, really throughout all of chapter 3, Paul talks a lot about righteousness, uh, having, uh, maintaining righteousness. And I was kind of looking up some definitions this week, and one of the ones that I really liked is the first one, that purity of heart and rectitude of life. It just sounds right, doesn't it? Purity of heart and rectitude of life. But it's being and doing right. Okay, that's more understandable, but it doesn't sound nearly as nice. Conformity and character and conduct to a right standard. So all of these, you see, cover both uh, the, the heart or the belief system and the life and lifestyle that should be impacted by the belief system. So righteousness includes, as it turns out, what have we learned? Both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. It's right, belie- right believing and right living. Focusing on just one half doesn't get you your final answer of righteousness. And righteousness is part of being reconciled or coming into a oneness with Jesus. He was our exemplar of right belief and right living, and that's what we're to emulate. That's what we're to strive for. We're called to follow Christ and his example. And, and Paul says not only are we called to follow Christ and his example, but we're to rejoice over this. We're to rejoice over this call to live righteously. It is faith building. It requires us to put our faith into action. Because we all know we're going to be tempted, we're going to be tried, we're going to be beset upon by every side, and we are going to fail on various points. But Paul reminds us that this is okay, because our righteousness is totally derived from Christ anyway. He stresses that very point. Back in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I've already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he says, I haven't attained righteousness. I'm not perfect by any means, and yet I can claim it. Not because of anything I've done, but I can claim it because of what Christ has done for me on my behalf. Any righteousness I can claim is because he has made me his own. So this imputed righteousness, this this righteousness that's been given to us, he goes on to say, it really compels us. It allows us to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this unearned and yet very still, very still very real righteousness that we receive through faith in Christ Jesus, it frees us from this heavy, heavy burden of trying to earn our way into heaven. And instead, we're inspired, we're encouraged, we're equipped even to live like we're already in heaven. That's that already not yet part that Al mentioned a week or two ago. I mean, we are all still painfully aware that we're still citizens of this earth. We're still citizens of this kingdom, but we can start living like we're part of the next. We're in the next kingdom. And Paul goes on to say, so imitate me even as I imitate Christ. Let's all work together. Let's all walk together towards our joint citizenship in heaven. So don't follow the world, he says. Their end is destruction. 
Their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their shame. They're drunk on power and greed. Don't follow that path. Remember, your citizenship is in heaven. And, and, and we're waiting for that ultimate and eternal ruler to come who's going to reappear. Christ is going to reappear. He's going to transform these bodies prone to malfunction and error, illness and death. We're going to be transformed like his glorious body. And you've got to admit, after the last year or so, that's pretty encouraging. I mean, it's supposed to be encouraging anyway. And even as Paul's saying this, he understands that this life and this world and these bodies, they can wear down. They can wear us down. The body suffers, the spirit suffers, faith can falter. And so Paul begins the closing thoughts of this letter with, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm, people. It's going to be worth the wait. Stand firm. Hang in there. Stay focused. Keep pressing towards the goal. Keep pressing towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is just continuing here this pattern of, of uh, laying out these themes that we've seen throughout the book. There, I mentioned seven major themes a few weeks ago, and as Paul starts to close this letter out, he's landing heavily here on the holiness-growing aspect. Um, he's landing heavily on the theme of eternity gazing, and we're going to see today how doctrinally rich this last section is. But this is still a very personal letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And after alluding several times to problems within the church, early in, earlier in the letter, Paul finally addresses those problems here towards the end. Verses 2 and 3, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here it is. Paul, Paul doesn't elaborate on what the problem might be between these two women, um, but we can reasonably conclude, I think, that's a fairly serious dispute. Paul makes a direct appeal to the two women involved. And the word translated entreat can also mean beg or plead. That gives us an idea of how serious this issue is. Whatever it is, a big issue, a small issue, we don't know. But it's not just this this uh, problem between these two women that is Paul's concern, but it's the potential division that might come from it. So he's begging for, for resolution. And interestingly, the Greek word that translates entreat shares the same root as the word paraclete, which is another name for the Holy Spirit. It, it means things like comforter, advocate, friend. So he's trying to find some peaceful, calm resolution to this problem. He's begging these women to solve their problems so that comfort may prevail, so that peace may ensue, so that unity can be achieved. I think we can also infer that Paul knows these women personally. He's comfortable enough to call them by name. They've been supporters uh, of Paul and his mission work. They've been supporters of the gospel in general, and probably financial and in other ways too. He mentions that they've also helped Clement. Now, we don't know for sure, but he could be referring to Clement of Rome, who's one of the early bishops in the Roman church. We don't really know for sure. 
Um, but these women are known by Paul, and because they've helped so many other people, they're likely well-known outside of the local church as well. So whatever division might start within the local church could spread among the larger church. And Paul wants to nip this in the bud, so to speak. Whatever the problem is, it's, it's profound enough that they're unable to resolve the issue on their own. They need help working through it. So Paul appeals to this unnamed companion. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women. Help these women who've labored with me. They're believers. Their names are in the book of life, and yet they're causing potential damage in the church. Help them resolve their problem. Help them restore unity. And we know by now, after going through Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, that Paul consistently calls for unity in the church. This is a big issue. Back in chapter 2, he wrote, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And you can kind of see his, his logic pattern here. First, we're united with Christ and we're joined in the Spirit. That's the necessary foundation for unity in the church. Then we're supposed to rally together around these shared goals and and values that we find in Christ, that we seek to emulate love, sharing, tenderness, compassion, one in spirit and one in mind. That's the goal. But we all know that other people make that hard. We're pretty good at it. But other people make that really hard. I mean, even as we are being made new, the truth is, we're not yet completely new. The old sin nature still rears its ugly head from time to time. And those of us who otherwise are united with Christ, even as we seek to follow him, we can still squabble and bicker and argue over the color of curtains or the appropriate number of squirts from the perfume bottle before we go to church, or whether or not guitar players can even be Christians. I mean, we're pretty sure about organists. Piano players are in, but the guitar players. Or we divide and we fight over masks and vaccines and all kinds of other things that come up in our culture. And then the old nature gets us all nutted up to the point where we're absolutely convinced that our opinion is the only opinion or at least it should be why am I so smart and everyone else is so dumb and then we have no compassion no sympathy, no grace, no love no charity for anyone holding any other view so Paul sees where this unnamed issue in Philippi might eventually lead and he appeals to his unnamed companion please help them out Reason with them. Pray with them. Give them a brotherly headbutt if necessary. Do something to get their attention and help them resolve this problem. Whatever you can do, because it can lead to division, which is bad enough in and on its own, but it can also cause the unbelievers, those watching, it can cause them to discount anything else the church says or does. It affects the witness of the church. And Paul has made it clear that unity in the church is actually a testament. It's a proof of the existence of God. It serves to prove the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When this varied and motley group of bus drivers and plumbers and attorneys and teachers and millwrights and nurses and artists and motorcycle drivers, 
who seem to have nothing else in common, we can all gather together in one spirit, in one mind, and worship the one true God. When that happens, something miraculous takes place. So you see, this, this appeal to problem resolution, this appeal to unity, is really part of the application of Paul's therefore in verse 1. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Keep doing what you know to do. Keep doing the things you've been called to do. Keep your eyes on the prize of the upward call of Christ. Work this problem out. Restore the image of the church. Get help if necessary, but fix it. And then Paul goes on because he has a bit more to say. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is almost one of those throwaway passages. You don't really know why it's in Scripture. There's not much here. So this seems like this shift is is pretty striking here from from don't argue, don't dispute, you know, don't get caught up in in petty petty squabbles, stand firm in your faith, and then boom, rejoice in the Lord. Let me say it again in case you missed it. Rejoice in the Lord. Let me say it again in case you're all still puffed up over the color of the drapes or whatever. Again, I say rejoice. (laughs) So this appeal to rejoicing may initially seem disconnected from the previous verses, But it's the connector between what he's just written and what he's about to write. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul says, let's just be reasonable, people. Now, this is obviously aimed at probably the the Euodia and Syntyche issue. But it's also aimed at the other church members who may be in the process of choosing up sides. Uh, And then it turns out it's applicable for every church and every age. Let's be reasonable. Be reasonable. For example, in the, in the church in Philippi here, it's possible that the best course of action, the best resolution may be that neither party is going to get exactly what they want. But the solution to the problem, the resolution is what's going to work out best for everyone. It's going to keep everybody united in the process, united in the outcome. And that would be an amazing testament to the oneness to be found in the body of Christ. Which is the larger goal. The ultimate goal of the resolution of the problem is to bring glory to God. How is God going to be best glorified in this situation? Let's be reasonable about that. But the call for reasonableness goes beyond just this present crisis in Philippi. It still reverberates throughout the centuries. Paul continues, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, this applies to the present issue in Philippi, dealing with whatever it is between these two women, but it's also, as it turns out, just a good life skill for believers to develop. Paul says, don't be anxious. I think what he probably ought to say is learn not to be anxious. Because it's an acquired skill. It turns out that anxiety and worry are kind of the default human reaction to our circumstances. We have to unlearn that and learn how to not be anxious. 
and anxiety or feelings of uncertainty, agitation, dread, or fear. It's the feeling that we have no control in a given situation. So when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, it seems contrary to our human experience. But it does seem entirely consistent with the rest of Scripture. Just a couple of examples. You know, when, when Moses died and, and Joshua was taking over leadership, what did the Lord tell Joshua repeatedly? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. I'm going with you. Really, I'm going before you. I know how this is going to work out. There's a whole section, as it turns out, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus taught us not to be anxious. And then he lists all these things that we're not supposed to worry about. And the very first one is, don't be anxious about your life. Just in general, don't be anxious about your life. And then he goes on, don't be anxious, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live. Don't worry about how long you're going to live. Matthew 6.27, he says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? We should, and why should we not be anxious? Because the verse goes on to say, the Father knows what we need. And how does he know what we need? This verse says, the Lord is at hand. It seems clear to me that, based on most of Scripture, on the whole, we are to avoid anxiety. We're not to live in fear. But we all know that that is much harder to do than it is to say. I mean, even if we wholeheartedly believe that the Lord is completely sovereign and absolutely in control, anxiety still seems to lurk in the shadows. And how the devil loves to play on our fears. Did God really say? Did he really mean You know, you probably ought to fret over that some. You probably ought to come up with a plan B, just, just in case. Anxiety is kind of like that favorite shirt that you just can't get rid of, that your wife keeps throwing out and somehow it keeps getting back in the drawer. <laughs> Sometimes we even consciously invite anxiety in, whether, whether we admit it or not. But being able to worry about something, letting it run around our mind, letting it control our thoughts, it gives us an illusion of control. Or at least makes us feel like we're involved in the process somehow. It feels like we're doing something. Well, I have no clue how to solve this, but I can worry about it. And I feel like I'm making a contribution. And then that easily turns into a problem where we think we might have a solution. We think we have to solve the problem. We see it as a problem to solve rather than an opportunity for us to trust in the Lord and let him solve it. So anxiety can lead us to have ungodly concerns about our circumstances, our provision, our reputation, whatever the issue might be. It can cause us to lose our eternal perspective on things. 
So we get stuck in the already of what we see here and now, and we kind of start to ignore the not yet part. And most of us are not immune from anxiety. I'm just going to say it. None of us are immune from anxiety. You know, I've, I've lost count over the last couple of weeks how many people I've talked to about masks and vaccine mandates, for example. I mean, there's just a high level of anxiety in the culture right now, and not unjustifiably, I might add. Right? I mean, there, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a, there's a lot that's out of our control. So when the illusion of control is taken from us, and it has just been an illusion all along, when the illusion of control is taken from us, that's when anxiety starts to kick in. And the last year or so, we've all dealt with heightened anxiety. Did you know that, that prescriptions for anti-anxiety medication went up 34% last year? It's probably likely to increase again this year. And now we have people facing the very real possibility of losing their incomes, losing their livelihoods, losing jobs and careers, which they've invested time and money and effort into for, for years and decades. It can all be wiped away over a governmental mandate to take a vaccine that many would argue seems like a serious government overreach. And I'm not here to debate the merits of the vaccine or the mandate. I'm happy to do that someplace else, but that's not our uh, issue here. That's not our primary purpose in the Lord's house. But people are anxious. People are stressed. Some are anxious that more people won't get vaccinated, and so they're anxious that they're going to get COVID from somebody. And, and others are concerned about the long-term safety of the vaccine, which we don't really know. And, and still others are concerned about the, what appears to be the usurpation of autonomy and liberty at the hands of our own government. And this is all just around one issue. This doesn't take into the fact that we all live regular lives. We still have jobs and kids and mortgages and car payments and all this other stuff that we have to deal with. It seems like we're all barely staying afloat in a sea of anxiety. And Paul has the nerve to say we're not supposed to be anxious about anything as we shake our heads and scoff and say, welcome to modern life, Paul. But remember, Paul's writing to a church in Philippi that's currently occupied and controlled by Rome. They're heavily taxed with no representation. They're completely under the command and control of every whim that issues forth from a leader they have not met, they did not vote for, and who cares not one whit about them. They're without voice and without choice, and to this church, Paul writes, don't be anxious about anything. I think Paul understood that anxiety is a subtle insinuation that God is either unknowing, unable, or unwilling to help. Anxiety is anti-faith. I know that can be hard to hear, because we all struggle with it. But work with me through this. When Paul says, don't be anxious, he doesn't just throw it out like some great bumper sticker that's got a little fish on the you know both ends of it it's not some mantra that we're supposed to repeat over and over until our minds are blank slates so we all can just sit for hours saying don't be anxious about anything don't be anxious about anything Paul says the answer to anxiety the correct response to our worldly circumstance what separates the believer from the unbeliever is that by faith through faith we can avoid or at least minimize our anxiety 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. By taking our request to God. So here it is. If anxiety is like some you know, pathogen or virus or something that attacks our faith, it, it weakens our trust in the Lord, it breaks down our spiritual immune system, it causes our will to buckle, it makes us prone to panic attacks or, panic attacks or fear or whatever else might, might come out of it. Paul says, I, I understand that's an issue, and I understand there's a concern about this, but it's okay. There's a cure. There's a vaccine for that. You can combat anxiety. You can fight back against worry. You can remove stress with a liberal dose of prayer and gratitude. Take your requests. Take your concerns. Take your fears, your uncertainties, your anxieties. Take it all to the Lord in prayer. With thanksgiving, with gratitude even. And this sounds so simple. There's not one of us here that doesn't know this. And yet, it can be hard to do sometimes. But this is the only cure for what ails you. You want a mandate from a higher power? Here it is. I mean, we should all be learning by now, I think, that that our various governmental structures are not our saviors, functional or otherwise. They are not omniscient, omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They'd like us to think they are, but they're not. So let's be reasonable. Let's not settle for cheap substitutes. If you're unsure, uncertain, feeling anxious about whatever, take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, this is not to suggest that being a Christian provides immunity from the COVID. It does not. Being a Christian does not provide immunity from food poisoning or cancer or getting hit by a bus, or choking on a ham sandwich. In fact, we've already heard the verse about not being anxious about the number of our days, because the Lord already knows all that. He's got it under control. In fact, he's got everything under control. We're still going to deal with hard stuff, because we're still on this earth. We're still living in a fallen world. We're we're not yet in the new kingdom. We're going to deal with hard stuff, because this ain't heaven yet, but we know how the story ends. And as we continue to have to deal with stress and and pressure and and needs, as opposed to wants, needs, the Lord knows all that too. And he says, come talk to me about it. Pray. Pray with supplication. That just means plead humbly. Understand that God owes you nothing. He's given you more than you deserve. Plead humbly. And approach the Lord with thanksgiving. Be grateful for what you have. You know, even the fact that, that, that we're, we're stressed out about losing everything means the Lord has given us everything to lose. I mean, we all do it. We kind of develop this mindset to some degree over time about our stuff. It's our stuff. Our stuff is our stuff. We've earned it. We worked hard for it. That's only partially true. Every good gift comes from the Lord. And he might decide to take it away for a while. But if he gave it to you once, there's plenty more where that came from. He can do it again. 
I just have to say one word here and you all get it. Job. In times of stress and anxiety and, and fear and doubt, rejoice in the God who is not some faceless bureaucrat in Rome or Olympia. Rejoice and give thanks to the God who cares for you, who loves you, who has blessed you beyond measure, and whose love and concern will not end. Rejoice in the God who will never leave you or forsake you. Rejoice in the God who not only listens to your prayers and requests, but who delights in hearing from you. As I was working through this this week, and I got to that section, and I kind of wrote it out, and then I went back through and read it, and then I read it again, I read it again, and I felt like my, my anxiety began to lift a little bit. Our God is not distant and removed. He is not unknowing or uncaring. He's the God of history as well as the God of present events, and he wants us to worship him alone. He's not going to share our heart with our stuff. So perhaps he does want to break our dependence on all of our stuff. Perhaps he does want us to lead different lives than we have been living. He wants us to grow in him. He wants us to lean into him. He wants us to desire his will for us. And when we are grateful rather than fearful, when we are rejoicing in the Lord rather than worrying in the world, something remarkable takes place. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, it goes without saying, this is a pretty amazing verse. I mean, it seems to suggest, I promise even, that when we, when, when we reject anxiety, and I'm not talking about those moments of doubt and fear that we have, but this ongoing, persistent worrisomeness. Is that a word? When we, 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 we reject this ongoing sense of worrying where, where we imply... Know it, whether we know it or not, that God may not be watching or he may not be caring or he may not be concerned about us. When we refuse to be controlled by our circumstances, when we learn to walk by faith and not by sight, when our will aligns with God's will, which means we move to him, not waiting for him to move to us, when we cast our cares on him because he cares for us, when we rejoice in our many blessings, we will receive, we will feel, we'll join in, we'll experience the peace of God, which is so foreign to everything that we know, it literally surpasses all understanding. It's just beyond everything that we know. And what's more, the, the, this word for peace here is uh, essentially the New Testament version of the Old Testament word, shalom. It doesn't just mean peace of mind. It doesn't just mean, ooh, I feel better. Shalom means peace, but it means completeness. It means the wholeness, well-being for the whole person, body, mind, and soul. So there's all-encompassing, soul-soothing, mind-calming, heart-warming, complete peace comes to us as a gift from God. And it's so comprehensive, it's so overwhelming, we just can't even describe it. It just surpasses everything we know. Now, a lot of you may have already experienced this to some degree. You've, you've faced dark days, hard times, tough decisions in your life before. To move or not to move, to marry or not to marry, to marry that person or not that person, to take this job or that job, to go to that college or this college. You, you faced some real-life issues, and, and you, you struggled through it, and, and you've prayed about it, and you finally made your decision, and then 
you just almost immediately get this sense of calm and peace. I bet almost every believer who's been a believer for any length of time, you probably all have some story about how you've been through this process. You've been through this experience. And you know how amazing it is, which begs the question, why do we doubt it so often? Why do we hang on to worry and anxiety and fear? Why do we allow it back in? Paul says this peace from God not only deals with our present anxiety, but it will guard our hearts and minds from future anxiety and worry. If we let it. Now again, as Paul's writing this idea about guarding our hearts, he's shackled to a guard as he's writing this. And so when he's talking about the peace of God guarding our hearts, he knows what guarding looks like. It's this ever-watchful presence. Paul is the center of attention as it were. So when our will aligns with God's will, when we allow God to be God, and we don't make him wait for us while we try to sort things out and worry about things for a while, then his peace will guard our hearts and minds. It kind of acts like a bouncer. It it works hard to keep the anxiety out and keep the peace in. And the Lord does most of the heavy lifting, but we have a contribution to make here as well. It requires some effort on our part. We have to learn to reject anxiety. Again, this is an acquired skill. But Paul goes on to say, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So this is the last part of the antidote to worry and anxiety. It's, it's really part of the whole anti-anxiety package. It comes to you at no extra charge. Um, but it starts with re- rejoicing in the Lord, and that's worth repeating because Paul did. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, be thankful for what you have. Pray for what you need or what you think you'll need. Uh, and praying for God's will is always just a good place to start here. And then allowing the Lord to work, finding peace in his sovereignty and power. Finally, he says, do the work of controlling your own thoughts. When you find yourself in a worry spiral, when you're having a pity party, you're having an anxiety attack, take control of your thoughts. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, take every thought captive. Bind it. Clamp it down. Change your mental pattern. It sounds so simple, and it is, but it's so effective. Take your mind off all the negative things. Stop fixating on all the many, 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 many things you can't control. Because really, just because you fret over stuff doesn't mean you have any more control over it. Cast out the negative and meditate. Think, he says. Think on these positive things. And then he gives us a list. In case you can't think of positive things, there are those days. Maybe we struggle to find positive things. Paul gives us a list of things we can think on. And he starts with, think about what is true. Well, that'll keep you busy for a while. Think about what's true. I mean, we are bombarded daily, hourly, with an endless stream of untruths. We're supposed to think about what's true. You know, it turns out that a lot of what we've been taught or have come to believe that our evolving, wisening, progressive humanity is now showing us to be false. 
We thought when God created Adam and Eve, there were just two genders. There are like a hundred. We thought that the facts of history were, were facts of history, but it turns out they're really dependent on how we feel about them. We've been told that the government should represent the people, but in some cases, they can actually rule over people, make us do things we don't want to do. There's a lot to hang on to here to, to, to discover what is true. That's the first thing Paul tells us. Stand for what is true. Think about what's true and stand for what is true. And the standard for truth is God and his word. That's truth. Jesus told us he is the way, the truth, and the life. So as we think about what's true, as, as we're rejecting all the negative stuff and we're thinking about what is true, as we read truth, it has this double impact of dispelling our anxiety and fear and actually making us better prepared to stand for truth and to represent truth. So the vaccine of truth destroys darkness in the mind and brings light to the culture. That's a pretty good place to start. He says, think about what's honorable. Think about what's worthy of respect. Think about what is just. There's another one that could take us a while. What is justice? It's under attack. I mean, our standards of morality and ethics are being blown apart. These rioters are justified. These need to go to jail forever. Because it turns out motives are more important than behaviors. These laws are breakable. They're just kind of guidelines, really. But these people, they need to receive swift punishment. Justice is in the eye of the beholder. So we're called to think about, we're called to know, understand what justice is. What is right and wrong? What is God's unchanging standard? But then we're also told to to know, to realize, to remember that regardless of how bad things are here and now, there will come a day when the great judge sits on his great throne and makes all things right. And we can ease up on our anxiety about those things a little bit. We can find some comfort in that. We don't have to solve every problem, but they will be solved. Think about what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable. Think about these things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Think about all these things. And I know I have in the past, when, I, when I've been feeling anxious about something, usually in the middle of the night when I can't sleep and you've got those thousand things running through your head, you know. And I get to the point, I don't even know what to pray for. I start reciting the Lord's Prayer. Or I start singing a hymn in my head. Boy, that would be annoying for Lene, wouldn't it? <laughs> Come thou fount of it. Or, or singing a hymn, uh, one of our worship songs, which is why we're so picky about the songs we sing. They should be scripture, scripturally accurate and life-relevant. And when I do that, I find my anxiety begins to fade. There's something about replacing the negative with positive. In short, Paul says, love God with your heart, soul, and mind. And then he finally says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So think about all these things, and then live like you mean it. Now, the word practice, I think, has a great double meaning for us here, because to put something into practice means you're just actively doing it, right? But it also has the meaning of doing it over and over and over until we get it right. Or at least until we get better at it. 
And again, I think fighting anxiety is an acquired skill. It will take practice. Fortunately for us, there is no shortage of anxiety-producing life events. We can practice to our little heart's content. But we have the added bonus of knowing that the peace of God can be here and now as part of our reward. So this is not just doctrinally rich information. What Paul lays out here is potentially life-changing information. It is faith-building information. And so we should pause and, and think through this, meditate on this over the next week or so. When was the last time you experienced the unsurpassing peace of God that comes from allowing him to do what he knows is best for you? Regardless of our level of comfort or understanding, just allowing God to do what is best for us. And as, sim- as simplistic as this saying is, I mean, it truly is fit for a bumper sticker, but there's some truth in let go and let God. We don't need to hang on to all of our anxiety and fear. And what better testimony can there be in our present age than Christians who reject anxiety and fear? That we let our reasonableness be known to everyone. We express gratitude for our many blessings without fear of having it taken away from us the day after next. Where we stand for what is true, what is just, what is pure, and what is honorable. You know, this is how the church has survived and will survive every plague, every political assault, every social assault, anything that comes at us, the church will survive from Jesus' death until his return because the church responded to this. May we be counted among the faithful. Let's pray. Lord, again, we live in in heavy times and dark times, but this is nothing new to you. There have been heavy, dark times in, in many civilizations and many cultures before us, and the church has withstood the gates of hell. Because of the the faith, because of the belief, because of the actions of the followers. So Lord, I, I pray that we are counted among the faithful, that as we claim to be followers of Christ, Lord, that we truly seek to emulate. Uh, right belief and right living, that we reject the negative assault on our thinking and and anxiety and and worry and stress, but Lord, we we camp firmly on your word and that we live it out. We live like we mean it. What a powerful testimony this could be in our culture if the church actually lived out that way. What a powerful witness for them to see that we are not falling apart. We're being reasonable. We have concerns. We have issues. We can talk through things. But, Lord, we are not dividing. We are not fighting. But we are united in one spirit, in one mind, and one accord. Lord, we thank you for the the power of the spirit that works in and through all of us. So we pray that as we go forward that these traits continue, that that we... Uh, continue to practice them, uh, both to do them and to practice and get better at them so that we can be called faithful at the last day.
We thank you again for your great love for us and for the great word that you've left for us from which we can learn. In Jesus' name, amen.